Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And people can't seem to get enough of gangster stories. When we did the recent podcast on John Dillinger, listener Tori suggested on Facebook that we do a continuing series on 1920s and 30s gangsters. And that got me thinking of all those gangsters throughout history that sort of became the supporting characters of the gangster world, so to speak, just in the sense that they're not necessarily as well known as the Capones and the Dillingers, but they were still public enemies in their own right. They might have been really the guys who were out there doing the dirty work, too. True. You might hear their names pop up in gangster movies now and again, though often their stories are changed a bit to fit whatever plot line they're a part of. But in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at a few of these sort of side characters who have popped up in our gangster research over and over along the way. And we'll try to find out who they really were and in some cases see where they fit into the bigger picture of 1920s and 1930s gangsters, whether they're kind of outliers or maybe key players. Yeah. And this is partially inspired by Lizzie, too, who edits our podcast, because after the Dillinger podcast, she wanted to know a little bit more about Babyface Nelson in particular, because he came up and she loved how we described him as a psychopath. She was like, I want to know more about this guy. So So just for you, Lizzie, we'll kick off the list with Babyface Nelson. Indeed. So this gangster's nickname makes him sound sweet, but he was really a ruthless killer, as we learned in the Dillinger episode. He was born Lester M. Gillis on December 8th, 1906 in Chicago. And he was a pretty small kid. He was not someone that you would expect to be frightened by. He was barely five foot five. So maybe that's why he felt like he had to be the toughest kid around to survive from the very beginning. And he really did start early. He started out running with a crew of juvenile delinquents. And by his teen years, he was already moving up to stealing cars. And his fellow gang members already had started to call him babyface by this time because he just looked so young for his age. And he was, as we mentioned, kind of a, a smaller kid. So Babyface eventually transitioned out of auto theft and joined the Capone mob. His job was to keep labor union guys in line, but he was way too into his work. He kept killing people that he was just supposed to be kind of roughing up and intimidating a bit. And this was kind of his trademark, being way too reckless and quick to kill people. He didn't plan his jobs to avoid violence or seem to follow any sort of gangster code. He just went in guns a-blazing. He wasn't really thinking of the business side of being a gangster, it sounds like. So he was ultimately asked to leave the Capone gang, maybe the only person to get kicked out of that group for being too violent. I know, I was really surprised by that. But around the same time, in about 1928, he met and married a salesgirl named Helen Wazinak and started holding up jewelry stores and banks in order to support her. And he got caught after robbing a Chicago bank in January 1931 and ended up spending a year in prison. He escaped, though, in February of 1932 while he was being transported between facilities for a hearing. And Helen was waiting for him in a car and helped him escape. So after that, they moved to California, where Nelson became involved in bootlegging for a while. And that's also where he met John Paul Chase, another liquor smuggler slash gangster. And the two of them became really close friends and partners in crime. Chase would supposedly introduce Nelson as his half-brother sometimes. 
But by about the summer of 1933, Nelson had done pretty much all he could do in California's bootlegging business. So he and Helen packed it up and moved back to the Midwest, and he got involved in robbing banks again. Chase eventually joined up with them. And then, of course, as we know from our recent episode about the first public enemy number one, Nelson joined up with the Dillinger gang after Dillinger so famously escaped from Crown Point Jail in 1934. And Nelson worked with the Dillinger gang for a while, pulling off several jobs, and was with them during that big showdown with the FBI at Little Bohemia Lodge, which, of course, we talk about in a lot more detail during the Dillinger episode. Nelson killed one federal agent during that encounter and wounded at least a couple more. And he and his wife and Chase all went to California and were there when Dillinger was shot and killed in Chicago. Nelson got promoted, so to speak, to the public enemy number one spot after that. But he didn't really do what Dillinger did, which was sort of try to calm things down a little bit since he had so much heat on him. He didn't lay low at all. In fact, he returned to the Midwest and was implicated in several crimes. It almost seemed like he wanted to live up to his new title, liked the idea of being public enemy number one. So on November 26, 1934, Nelson and Chase stole a car in Chicago and drove into Wisconsin. The FBI was on the lookout for them, of course, and by the next day, a couple of agents had spotted the stolen vehicle. So the agents and Nelson and Chase all got involved in a shootout near Barrington, Illinois, and both the agents were killed as a result of the shootout, and Nelson was also mortally wounded. He did manage to get back into the car, though, and drove off with Chase, but died at about 8 p.m. that day. The FBI found his body the next day near a cemetery in Nile Center, Illinois, and it had been stripped to delay identification. So he usually appears as a supporting character in gangster films, including the 1973 movie Dillinger. But as we can see, he was a lot of trouble in his own right. I was also trying to remember, I think he's in A Brother Where Art Thou. He has a little part in that where he goes bank robbing with them and he's just totally crazy and and kind of fits what we've just learned here on the podcast. There you go. So though he has a pretty intimidating nickname, this next gangster on our list may have been one of the least tough and scary of all the ones we're going to talk about. He was born George Kelly Barnes in 1895, 1897, sources kind of differ on that, in Memphis, Tennessee, and he became known later as Machine Gun Kelly. But he actually started out his life of crime as a common bootlegger. He started going by the alias of George R. Kelly in his bootlegging days, supposedly to preserve his family name. And that was a good thing, too, because he did end up serving some jail time. He spent a year in Leavenworth in Kansas around 1927, 1928 or so after he was caught selling liquor on an Indian reservation. So when he got out of prison, Kelly went back to bootlegging and was involved in some holdups thanks to these bank robber contacts that he'd made in prison. But really, at that point, he was still a pretty small-time criminal. It's after he met his second wife, Catherine Thorne, around 1930 that things really started to change. So Catherine had a bit of a criminal background herself. Her parents ran a fugitive farm in Texas where criminals could pay by the night to hide out from the law. This was news to me that, that such a thing existed, a fugitive farm. It's like a 
B&B for convicts. Um, But Catherine herself had also been arrested for various crimes. And she really had bigger ambitions for her husband than for him to just be a common bootlegger. She wanted him to be a real criminal. And so a lot of historians think it's Catherine that created the whole Machine Gun Kelly persona. And she's also said to have been the first one who bought George a Thompson machine gun and made him practice with it and um, made it made him kind of talk to other criminals and would talk him up herself to criminals that they knew. Yeah, I think she was the first to kind of throw that machine gun Kelly thing around, just visiting places, you know, throwing going to bars there. at night and, you, you know, throwing it out there. Gun Kelly. My husband, machine gun Kelly. Yeah. So he became fairly proficient with the machine gun and he carried it with him on jobs. But apparently there's no evidence that machine gun Kelly ever actually fired a machine gun at a person or killed anyone with it. I think the name alone really does the trick. I think it does. It's intimidation works wonders. So they pulled off a few bank jobs, but again, Pretty small-time stuff. The payoff wasn't that great. So in 1933, they decided to try their hand at kidnapping, and they picked Charles Urschel, a wealthy oil tycoon, as their target. But it wasn't the smoothest crime ever. They made some mistakes kind of right off the bat. First off, they didn't know what Urschel looked like. So they burst in on Urschel and his wife and another couple, the Jarrett's, while they were playing bridge on July 22nd, 1933. But since they couldn't figure out who Urschel was and no one in the room would help him out. I mean, they asked around, but no one was willing to say. (laughs) So they ended up taking both men. They finally found some ID on Jarrett after they were on the road and then stole $50 from him and kicked him out of the car. And Machine Gun Kelly and company asked for a $200,000 ransom, which they did collect nine days after the kidnapping. They released Urschel unharmed. And George and Catherine Kelly split the ransom money with their accomplices and then went off on their own. They dyed their hair. They switched locations a lot to try to throw the authorities off their scent. But they kept Chicago as kind of their home base. And whenever they were back in Chicago, they lived a very lavish lifestyle during that time. And it only took the FBI a couple of months to catch up with them. For one thing, they'd recorded the serial numbers of the ransom money, so that helped. Also, Urschel was a pretty smart guy, and even though he was blindfolded during the entire ordeal, he was able to recall a lot of details and share them with the authorities. So he remembered, like, the sounds of men and women talking, and he would record the number of footsteps that he would make from one place to another and report those details that really helped a lot later and figuring the whole thing out. And it, I mean, it did help because Machine Gun Kelly and Catherine were caught the morning of September 26, 1933 in Memphis, where they were hiding out with some friends. They were both really hungover at the time. And legend has it that that morning, after they were surrounded by the authorities, Kelly cried out, quote, don't shoot, G-men, don't shoot, and thus coined the term G-men to refer to government agents. According to the FBI, this probably didn't really happen, and it's more likely the result of faulty reporting, but still a pretty good story. I have always wondered who first thought of that. Yes, so legend has it that that's where that came from, but maybe not. Who knows? In October of that year, George and Catherine Kelly were both convicted and sentenced to life in prison. So Machine Gun Kelly spent the rest of his life at Alcatraz and at Leavenworth, where he died of a heart attack in July of 1954. And Catherine was actually released in 1958 and ended up living out her days in Oklahoma, I think. There you go. And... 
Interestingly enough, the next guy on our list also has the same name, Machine Gun. Although in this case, it is Jack McGurn, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. And we've talked about this gangster before in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre episode. And in fact, he's considered by many people to be the one who orchestrated the whole St. Valentine's Day Massacre for Capone. If you heard that episode, you'll remember that McGurn claimed he'd been in bed all morning with his girlfriend, a blonde named Louise Rolfe, who became known famously as the Blonde Alibi. And Machine Gun Jack was never brought to trial for that crime. But McGurn had an interesting career before that point, too. He was born James Vincenzo de Mora in Chicago's Little Italy neighborhood in 1904. And in his teenage years, he was a boxer under the name Battling Jack McGurn. He showed promise at that time as a welterweight. His career as a boxer kind of changed course, though, in 1923, when his father, who was a grocer, was murdered by a gang known as the Jenna Gang. That's Jenna with a G. And after that, McGurn quit boxing and turned full-time to getting revenge for his father's death. He taught himself how to shoot a weapon. He went to work for Al Capone, who was still at this point getting established, but also, still at this point, the Jenna Gang's main rival. Because McGurn had this vendetta fueling him and he was getting pretty handy with a gun, Capone sent him after the Jenna Gang's guys. So McGurn ended up killing six of their gang members within a few weeks. And each time he killed a guy, he'd put a nickel in that guy's lifeless hand. And this was supposedly a reference to how the people who'd killed his father had called him a, quote, nickel and dimer. So you'd think that a guy obsessed with revenge like this would be really rough around the edges, right? But McGurn actually loved the finer things in life. He loved to dress up in swanky clothes and slick his hair back. And he used the money that he made working for Capone to invest in jazz joints. But sometimes he let his gangster ways kind of bleed into those other businesses. There's a good example of this involving a popular comedian named Joe Lewis who had quit working at one of the clubs McGurn partially owned to... Just move on, take a better offer at another club, and ended up becoming a huge hit at that other club. So McGurn sent a few thugs to rough him up, teach him a lesson for for ditching his original uh, job. The gang ended up cutting the comedian's tongue and slashing his throat, and it took Lewis a really long time to be able to talk again and a whole decade to get back to his comedy career. Even uh, by Capone's standards, this treatment was pretty harsh. After the incident, Capone gave Lewis $10,000 to help with his recovery. Another interesting side note about McGurn was that he was an avid golfer. He'd play with Capone and was actually a quite bit better than his boss. Which I imagine you'd have to be careful with. Yeah, I'd be worried about that. But he <laughs> we've, was. We've seen the untouchables. We know what <laughs> Capone can do with a baseball bat. It would probably be similar with a golf club. So Jack was so good that in 1933, he was able to enter the Western Open at Olympia Fields under his original name. He did poorly, though, in the first round, but did better the next day. Unfortunately for him, though, a municipal judge had issued a warrant for his arrest, and detectives recognized his name while reading the sports pages, so they knew where he'd be. So he was arrested approaching the seventh green, one under par. He was apparently very polite, you know, was civil with the officers, but asked them, could he be allowed to finish his game? And they agreed to that. Louise Rolfe, meanwhile, the blonde alibi, who was by this point McGurn's wife, asked the policeman, whose brilliant idea was this? <laughs> <laughs> so 
I can really just see this pretty vividly. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre podcast, McGurn's career went downhill after Capone went to jail, and he ended up becoming a small-time drug dealer, eventually getting gunned down in a bowling alley. McGurn's also been a supporting character in several gangster movies, including one in which the whole Joe E. Lewis thing is recounted, and that's the 1957 movie called The Joker is Wild with Frank Sinatra. So for our next entry, we're going to stick with the Capone gang and move on to Frank the Enforcer, Needy. So Frank Needy was born around 1896 in Naples. And when he moved to the States, he started work as a barber, making all these contacts in the underworld and expanding his business eventually to flee stolen goods. And it's this way that he eventually hooked up with Al Capone's gang during Prohibition and eventually rose to the position of one of Capone's top organizers or enforcers. So both Needy and Capone eventually got prison sentences for income tax evasion, but Needy served a much shorter term. When he got out of prison, he became the de facto head of the Capone mob. According to the Mafia Encyclopedia by Carl Sifakis, Needy wasn't really the mob's leader. There were too many loose cannons with allegiances only to Capone, but he was sort of the front man, focusing the attention of both the authorities and the media. And it must have been an effective public stance, because in 1932, he was shot by two police officers supposedly acting under the orders of Chicago's mayor, who at this point wanted to, since Capone was in prison, bust up his empire a little bit and distribute the territory among other crooks who were maybe a little more willing to, to make different alliances than Capone's men were. But Needy recovered from that attack. He was pretty near death, in fact, and eventually got caught up in a racket against these Hollywood production companies like Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox. And in March of 1943, he was accused of attempted extortion of $1 million from various production companies under the threat of union trouble, which sounds (laughs) ominous coming from um, Capone, a Capone mobster. But Needy, at this point, his position as the public face of the mob meant that he was going to have to take the fall for all the other guys involved. And he was pressured to do so, but was not interested in it due to his earlier prison sentence. He had not had a good time in jail. And so hours before the New York federal grand jury indicted him on the extortion charges, he committed suicide. In 2003, his Riverside home was rejected for preservation status. One of the petition supporters said that the unassuming nature of his house was what really made it worth preserving and said, quote, he probably had the money to build a bigger house in Riverside. And just one more note on Needy, since we are sort of mentioning movies and TV shows and all of that. He's almost a character who's bigger in fiction than in real life. He A couple of these are yeah, on this list. He apparently had a major role on the old television show, The Untouchables, and a very memorable role in the movie, The Untouchables, which I just mentioned in the last entry. So we have one more guy, and this is not a member of the Capone mob. In fact, he is an arch rival. Yeah, we mentioned that Frank Needy was kind of the Capone chief in name only, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't sometimes brutally effective. In the case of our next entry, Roger the Terrible Tui, 
Needy's power proved there was more than one way to eliminate a gangster. So Tui had been born in 1898 in Chicago, one of six sons of a patrolman. And the younger Tui eventually became a gambling boss and a bootlegger with Tui territory extending through the northwest section of Cook County, Illinois. Which is the Chicago area. But by 1934, his gang was going through some tough times. Three key members were dead, and 11 others, including Tui himself, were serving hard time. No thanks to Capone's man, Frank Needy. So here's what happened. Tui had been convicted in 1934 of kidnapping John Factor, a.k.a. Jake the Barber, who is the brother of cosmetics founder Max Factor Sr. The only catch, though, is that John Factor, who at this point was wanted in England and had been trying to avoid being extradited there, hadn't ever really been kidnapped. He had instead conspired with Needy. He was connected to the Capone gang and uh, faked his own kidnapping in order to frame Tui, who was accused of it and sentenced to 199 years and incarcerated at Stateville Penitentiary in Joliet, Illinois. In prison, however, Tui connected with a friend from the outside, Basil the Owl Banghart, and the two started planning an escape. I think that might be the best mob name in this episode. There's a lot of stiff competition. I don't know. So after years of observation, they had guns smuggled in through an American flag of all things and recruited a few more folks who were willing to risk an escape. So on October 9th, 1942, Tui kicked off the break by attacking a prison garbage truck driver, stealing the truck and driving it to the mechanical shop where the rest of the gang rendezvoused, overpowering the guards, using the 245s and a Molotov cocktail. They stole ladders and took two hostages. And got some rope. And so from there, they uh, drove to the guard tower, attacked the tower, the scaled the tower with the ladders, by the way, attacked the guard, stole his car keys, the rifles, a few other 45s that were in the tower, and then um, went out the other side of the wall and drove toward Chicago, abandoning their car in a really conspicuous location so the FBI wouldn't get involved over them having crossed state lines with a stolen vehicle. They did not want the FBI on their case. Little did they know, however, the FBI had a loophole through which they could intervene. On the outside, the men obviously hadn't registered. This is 1942, remember. And the men had not registered under the Selective Service Law, and therefore, they were draft delinquents. So Hoover himself used this loophole and took charge of the case personally. Basically, it was a Dillinger round two for him. So Tui and the gang, led by Banghart, managed to survive on the outside for a few months by sticking together for the most part since Banghart wanted zero outside contact until they could pull off a big job and spring for plastic surgery and fingerprint alteration. We touched on that a little bit when talking about Dillinger, too. So there were really tight quarters in this situation and strict rules, no alcohol, and Everyone was pretty paranoid. Every time one of the gang left to go buy food and provisions, Banghart followed behind with a sawed-off shotgun. As protection, but presumably, since Banghart was the leader, kind of like I'm watching your back, too. Eventually, all of this paranoia took its toll, and the group began to split and crumble. I think Banghart pistol-whipped a couple of the guys. And Hoover, meanwhile, got a lead by searching the names of mugging victims in the Chicago area who'd had their draft cards stolen, figuring that 
these fugitives really needed to get a, a hold of information like that, some kind of identifying information, and that these um, mugging victims would be the most likely aliases for the fugitives to use. And finally, Hoover did find a gang member and arrested Tui and Banghart personally after all the connections were revealed through surveillance. So Tui went back to prison but continued his appeals process. Eventually, federal courts accepted that the kidnapping had never happened and released Tui on November 25th, 1959. He was shot dead in front of his sister's home just weeks later, though, having just come out with an autobiography called The Stolen Years. And he really had a bad time in prison. He said of his imprisonment, quote, I was buried alive, nothing but darkness, loneliness, and desperation. So that's a different kind of note to end a podcast on gangsters, I'd say. It's not all um, shoot 'em up, going down in a hail of gunfire. It's this pretty <laughs> sad story, really. Yeah. Well, some would say that's what they deserve, I guess, depending on your point of coming. view. So that does it for this podcast on gangsters. Of course, we're not done with gangsters by any means. We focus mostly on Chicago-based people this time. Of course, there are gangsters all over the country and the world that we haven't talked about yet, and there are plenty of stories to tell, so you can expect more on that in the future. For now, though, we're going to move on to listener mail. Since we're talking about gangsters, we wanted to correct the record for the Dillinger podcast. We had a few people write in from Ohio, um, including Carrie. Well, I don't know if she's from Ohio, but she knows Ohio, apparently, because she wrote to tell us that when we were referring to Lima, Ohio, it's pronounced with a long I, because I think we said Lima in the podcast. Yes, like Peru. So thank you, Carrie, for writing in, and thank you to all the people who wrote in and um, wrote to us on Facebook about that. So now we know. And I also thought this was fitting. We got a Christmas present from um, Hillary, and she sent us assassination vacation. So maybe we're going to have some more um, murderous-type episodes coming up in the new year. People seem to like those. I, I know, mean, they we do. laugh, but so we'll, they're popular. We'll check that out. And thank you, Hillary. She also gave a, an interesting suggestion. She thought that an episode on like college secret society, weird college traditions would be interesting and had mentioned a few at her own school, but people have suggested skull and bones before, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. That, that might be interesting. Never know. A collegiate themed episode in addition to all these gangsters. Well, if you have any more suggestions like that to send us, you know, you can always write us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, or we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And we also have a great image gallery on public enemies. You can find that by searching our homepage for public enemies at www.HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.